Our uh, scripture reading this morning is taken from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning and worshiping uh, with you. Let's uh, take some time. We're going to take some time and study God's word together. But before we do that, let's uh, just pray. Heavenly Father, we need you. We depend upon you. And we ask for your presence and your power and your peace through your Holy Spirit. Jesus, we, we ask that you would reveal to our hearts the things that we need to know about ourselves then we might lay those things down, and then we might fully embrace you through your, through your sovereign grace. We come to you now in dependence and in peace because of you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been, uh, we've been looking at a series this fall, and what we've been saying in the, the series is gospel in life. And what we've said about the gospel is that uh, just like a bomb needs a detonator for the explosive, to, the power of the explosive to be released. So our spirituality needs the detonator of the gospel for our, the power of our spirituality to be released. And so we're looking at different aspects of the gospel. We've looked at the gospel of the city, the gospel in our hearts. This week what we're going to do is look at this concept of idolatry. And when you think about idolatry, what we're dealing with is the concept of the sin beneath the sin. The sin beneath the sin. And so we're going to look at the fact that the gospel transforms us by getting us to admit the sin beneath our sins. The gospel transforms us by getting to us to admit the sin beneath our sins. Now, it does a lot more than that, but this is what we're focusing on this week. How does the gospel transform us by getting us to admit the sin beneath all of our sins or particular sins that we do? We're going to look at our drive how the gospel transforms us by getting us to admit our drive for idolatry. We have it, we're driven for it. We're also going to look at our enslavement to idolatry. The gospel would have us admit our enslavement to it. And the gospel would have, our, admit us, have us admit our guilt regarding our idolatry. So our drive for our idolatry, our enslavement to it, and our guilt regarding it. The gospel gets us to admit our drive for idolatry. First off, deep down, we know that we owe God everything. We know 
deep down that we owe God everything. But we want to be in control of who we owe, what we owe to whom. We want to be in control of that. So, for example, in verse 21, one of the things you see, sorry, I'm particularly awkward with my stand this morning, so I'm going to keep fidgeting until I get it right. Uh, One of the things that we see in verse 21 is that there's knowledge of God, but there's not honoring God as God. Now, as you're looking at the scripture, one of the things I've warned at against again and again is the idea of taking something in a passage of scripture and drawing a line straight from it to you without knowing the redemptive context. But we're closer to this text than most of the texts that we've read because just a couple chapters later, one of the things Paul says is that you who would judge, you yourself do the same things. So you think you're outside of this group of people that he's talking about. He's talking about Um, whether religious or irreligious, outside of the nation of the people of God. He's talking about them here. And then he goes on in just a couple of chapters to say, and you who think you're better than these folks, you're doing the same things. And so he would have this letter distributed to the churches for the churches to read, for Christians to read, and here we are. So there's a, there's a nearer line to the, from this text to us than normally happens, and so I want us to be aware of that. So verse 21, knowing God but not honoring him as God. Or verse 21, knowing God, but not giving thanks to him as God. And verse 18, knowing God, but suppressing our knowledge of God. Suppressing our knowledge of God. Now look, knowing God, but not honoring him as God. The idea, today, honor means to regard with great respect. All right? Respect that is given to someone who's admired. We do not act towards God as if he's really great. If he's really supreme. As if he's as if he's who he actually says he is. There's a lack of honor uh, where it is due. And that lack of honor where it's due reflects a heart that does not want to admit its own lowliness. Think about that for a second. When you don't give honor where it's due, it reflects in your heart your your unwillingness to admit your own lowliness. So, the heart wants to think of itself as far more deserving of respect and admiration than it really is. We know God and that he deserves to be given honor, this passage says, but we don't, we want to be in control of who and what we honor and why. So that's one thing. Verse uh, 21, again, knowing God but not giving thanks to him, we fail to act as totally dependent or indebted to him. We fail to act as though we're totally indebted to God and dependent upon him. And a lack of gratitude reveals a heart that does not want to admit its own limitations. When you lack thankfulness, when thankfulness is due, you don't want to admit your own limitations. You want to think of yourself as far more self-sufficient than you really are. And knowing God, and that he deserves to be given thanks, but not do so, means that we're not in control. We, you know, like to, to Give thanks to God would mean that we're not in control of who we do and do not thank. And we don't want that. We don't want to be out of control of that. Verse 18, knowing God but suppressing our knowledge of God, we don't want to admit our complete allegiance to God. Our suppression of our knowledge of God reveals a heart that does not want to admit being subordinate. We're a subordinate who owes loyalty and commitment to the one who's superior We want to be subordinate to no one. We want to be our own masters, knowing God that he deserves to have us acknowledge that we know him, but we suppress that. We suppress it, the passage says, because that would mean we're not in control of who or what we do and do not acknowledge. We want control. Now, why? 
Why don't we honor him or give thanks to him or suppress our knowledge of him? It's because of our drive for idolatry. What's interesting about verse 21, and you'll see in verse 23 as well, is that we cannot simply deny the truth of God. Paul's saying here that we must exchange the truth of God for the truth of something else, verse 23. We must rely on truth of something on a foundational level. We must worship, we must adore, we must build our lives on something as an ultimate value. Now listen to this, all right? Here's a summary, this is encapsulated here. Since we were created for worship, we cannot eliminate God without creating God's substitutes. We cannot eliminate God from our lives without creating God's substitutes. And so we're, we're driven. We're rejecting God's control of our lives, and that leads inevitably to constructing counterfeit gods or idols. You see that in verse 25. Look, one, one author put it this way. He writes this. He says, Every self exists in relation to values perceived as making life worth living. A value is anything good in the created order, any idea, relation, object, or person in which one has an interest, from which one derives significance. These values compete. In time, one is prone to choose a center of value by which other values are judged. And when a finite value has been elevated to centrality, and imagine as the final source of meaning, then one has chosen a God. One has a God when a finite value is viewed as that without which one cannot receive life joyfully. Now look, these tend to actually gravitate towards one thing and then another. When, so we, we, our life centers on one thing that's most important to us, and then when something else comes along and expels our affections for the first thing because our affections for the second thing overwhelm our affections for the first thing, we just see a transfer of worship. But it's still idolatry. I'm not going to recommend the show because it's, uh, it's dark and it's violent and it's... Uh, got all of the kinds of things in there that would, can be destructive to a lot of people. But there's a show called Dexter. And the main character is about a serial killer. And the premise of the show is the idea that Dexter is biologically bound to his need to kill. And so it sees him as a victim. And the, and the majority of the show plays with that tension. Okay, is it right? You know, he's been trained with a certain code. His dad trained him, was a police officer, and trained him with a certain code to only find bad guys and only take down the bad guys. And he's been wrestling with this code. And at one point, he tries to come out from underneath the code a little bit. And he tries to just kill because that's who he is. And he goes back underneath the code, and he's wrestling, and he's wrestling. And he has this, he has this overwhelming desire that he can't sort of squelch. And the show is written uh, in a way that makes you want him to be able to succeed because of the way that he's been a victim in his life and the, and the kind of circumstances. And so you believe that premise throughout the entire show. Last Sunday was the second to the last show. Dexter's character said some amazing things. He said, you know what, I'm not going to kill because I don't want to kill. Because my longing is now for Hannah and Harrison and my life with them. The expulsive power of a new affection. It even happens in our hardest-to-understand characters on TV. You've got somebody who you're ready to write off to circumstance and the violence in his life and give over to all of the trauma he's experienced and say there's nothing that sort of can overcome that. Baloney. Even the writers know it's baloney. 
there's something that he put his affections on more that displaced the old affections. That's what happens for us. Every self exists in relation to values perceived as making life worth living. Rejecting God's control of our lives leads inevitably to constructing counterfeit gods or idols. That's what these things are that are at the center, the things that we live for. So the gospel transforms us by getting us to admit our drive for idolatry. We're driven people by nature. We must worship something. But also, the gospel transforms us by getting us to admit our enslavement to idolatry. Now, this is interesting, and I want you to think through this for a minute, because we don't often talk like this, and so this is going to be a, a moment that's special. It should be, pay extra special attention to this. Verse 24 says, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. Okay? The lusts of their hearts. God gave them up. And verse 25 says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the, created, the creature rather than the creator. Now, <clears throat> verse 24, our hearts, verse 24 shows that our hearts, desires, grow distorted and uncontrollable through our idolatry. And verse 25 shows the fact that we not only worship our idols, but we serve them and obey them. We order our lives into priorities. And whatever becomes the bottom line, that which defines us or validates who we are and everything else in our life, it becomes our bottom line. And that's the thing that we will feel absolutely driven to do. We're given over to it. It controls us. We have to have it in order to be happy, to like ourselves, to have meaning in life. And since this substitute doesn't satisfy, it never satisfies, can't. It's claiming to do things that only God can do in your life. It promises blessings but delivers curses. It doesn't satisfy because our hearts were made to center on God rather than a created thing. And so what happens in our enslavement to idolatry is that we always need more and more and more. We're given over to our idols. The gospel transforms us by getting us to admit our enslavement to them. Now look, example. It's one thing to want to do well working in the field of finance. It's one thing to want to do well there. It's another thing to need more and more of what your work in finance brings you, so much so that in 2008 when the market crashes, you throw yourself from a 40-story building and land in the street below because it's become the ultimate thing to you. Or it's one thing to want a close relationship a close and loving relationship. It's one thing to want that. It's another thing to be plunged into the midst of despair and anxiety, not being able to get out of bed in the morning because you can't get the relationship that you want. You've put the idea of relationship at the center, and if you can't have that, then life is not worth living. Or it's one thing to want the best for your kids, if you have kids. It's another thing to be on the edge emotionally every moment because you're riding every wave of the ups and downs of their lives. And it threatens to undo you. You've put their well-being at the center. And when you can't control that, it feels like you and your life itself are at stake. We always need more and more. We always need more and more. You think that you're free in the things that you pursue, in the things that you love, in the things that you like. But you're actually bound. And you're bound and you serve whatever you're bound to. Why? Because you were created to do just that. You were created to worship in this way. You were created to have something, someone at the center. 
and allow that to be the shaping and defining influence of your entire life and reflect through everything that you do. Because you were created to worship and serve, you're always going to worship something if it's not God. It's not like there's a second option. You're always worshiping something. So our substitutes don't satisfy us because our hearts were made to center on God, not on what he's created. Let's take some examples from the study that you're going to do in home meetings this week. So this is more general, and then I'll do a little bit more specific. More general. Think about the answers to these questions. Would you for a moment? Clear your mind. You know, do business with God as you're sitting in your seat. And turn this into a prayer of sorts as you listen. Life only has meaning, and I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. Is that a struggle that you face? Or this way, put it this way. Life only has meaning, and I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by so-and-so. Or how about this? Life only has meaning, and I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience or this particular quality of life. Or again, life only has meaning, and I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in this area. We're talking about things like power and approval and comfort and control, very generally. Those are great questions to ask God in prayer. When you, think about, when you think about what your answer is to those things. We're headed into a time of prayer, so you've got to deal with prayer on the heart level. You've got to deal with prayer underneath things here. Okay, slightly more specific. Anything can become an idol, including good things, right? Example of personal idols, work and career. Work becomes the most important thing to you, to be productive and useful or to feel successful and powerful. I remember an article that came out, you know, I I was in New York for a number of years. It's such a driven culture. It's such a work-driven culture. 70-hour, 80-hour weeks are very, very common. And there was an article that a guy had written about his daughter's imaginary friend, Mr. Ravioli. And Mr. Ravioli was uh, her friend because he was so busy that they always go out to restaurants to eat or always have taken. And so she had this imaginary friend on the phone. It was Mr. Ravioli. And Mr. Ravioli would want time with her. And she said, oh, I can't do that. I've got this meeting and I've got that meeting and I've got to take, check my agenda this week and we'll have to sca- You know what? Talk to my assistant and let's get, uh, let's get an appointment for, you know, three weeks out. She, you know, this was like a kindergartner. And she has Mr. Ravioli, her imaginary friend, uh, <laughs> working with a personal assistant to get things in line. What's the moral of the story? The father felt, there's something wrong when I'm so driven for work that, that I'm passing that ideal, I'm passing that idea on to my daughter, where she's actually mimicking me and the things that I give her and the way that she's ordering her life. Work and career had become more important to him. To be productive and, and useful or to feel successful and powerful, that had become important to him. Beauty and image. Now look, this can show itself in various forms, right? Including the following. You're prone to eating disorders. Or you spend excessive amounts of time and effort concerning your appearance. Or you need, uh, guys, let me, let me embarrass you for a moment. Or you need the false intimacy of pornography and other anonymous sex. Beauty and image has become the center of your life in a way that has dislodged God from being there. Family. This idolatry has many variations, too. If you're a parent, your children's prospects, 
happiness, obedience, health, godliness become the most important thing. Maybe you've had parents like that. Meeting your parents' expectations become the most important thing in that case. Or getting married and having a perfect marriage becomes the most important thing. Because family and what it means and the sort of narratives that you take from that are at the center of your life. They're shaping you. Romance is the same. This is not the same thing as sex. You, you live for falling in love or for someone to love you or for the dream of some true love that will fix everything. Money has variations in this. Having and saving lots of money might be your security and the way you feel safe in the world. Having and spending lots of money may be your main way to feel significant and important. So the gospel transforms us by getting to admit our enslavement to idolatry. We're underneath the power of it. But the gospel also gets, to, gets us to admit our guilt and idolatry. Our guilt and idolatry. Why? Well, we see here that the gospel is necessary in this passage. We see that the gospel is necessary because there's such a thing as the wrath of God. There's such a thing as the wrath of God. Verse 18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed. The word for is connected to the verses that go before that. It's good Bible study habit, by the way. Whenever you see the word for, what's it there for, right? You've got to understand how it's connected to the other parts. And the word for here in our verse is connected with 16 and 17 and shows us that the gospel is necessary because there's such a thing as the wrath of God. God's wrath and punishment is what? Look at verse 24, the first half. God's wrath and punishment is to give us over, right? To the things we worship and the things we want. We, both, we see both the justice and the terror of God's wrath in this passage. There's justice and terror. It's, God's wrath is just because deep down, the passage says we know God. We know him, and so we're without excuse. So it's just because he's only giving us what we want. We want to be in control of our own lives. But it's terrible because it means the worst thing, now listen to this, the worst thing God can do for you, the worst possible thing, his wrath revealed to you is to give you over to what you most want, to give you over to it. It's the worst thing he could possibly do. So his wrath is terrible because it means that the worst thing he can do for you is to let you reach your idolatrous goals. And yet, we see that all of Paul's confidence and joy in Romans 1, the first part of the chapter, 1 through 17, rests in what? It rests in the assumption that human beings are, apart from the gospel, under wrath of God. How can that still be? Well, the reality is that if you don't understand or believe in the wrath of God, then the gospel is not going to thrill you. It's not going to empower you. It's not going to be the detonation device that explodes your faith into the power of your faith into your life and changes things for you. So, how does that happen? How does that happen? And I want you to look at particularly, the, there's a home study this week for this uh, stuff that has come out. I want you to particularly look at that and read through it. And make sure that you do some of the, the work in the home study and also for the work in preparing for the home, uh, your home meeting. This is central to the power of the gospel being released in your life. You need to deal. The gospel forces you to admit and deal with your idolatry. All right? So how does that happen? How can you have the gospel thrill and empower and move you by understanding or believing in God's wrath? How does that happen? Let's look at some things to avoid, and we'll wrap up with these, these things here. 
Let's look at just some things to avoid, and then we'll try to take a look at the gospel and how it works in prayer itself, especially as we're headed on focusing on that. All right, things to avoid. There's an approach that's basically a moralistic approach. It's a moralistic approach to dealing with the wrath of God. And so the way you tend to think about the wrath of God is that you're doing wrong. You're doing wrong. Repent. Turn. You understand? And what happens here is that that approach, that moralistic approach, focuses in on behavior, but it doesn't go deeply enough. It doesn't go deeply enough. You must find out the why of why you do what you do. It's not just enough to stop doing an action. There's a why to the action that has to be dealt with in the gospel. So, for example, if you treat a headache with an aspirin, when in fact the why of the headache is a tumor, then you're not treating according to what needs to be done. If you don't treat the headache according to the why underneath, it's going to be fatal in that instance. Telling somebody to repent and change behavior is just insufficient. It's not enough. I'm not saying that we don't do that, that we don't ask about behavior, that we don't look at our behavior and do try to change there, but it's insufficient for the gospel being explosive in your life. Do you get that? It's insufficient because even though you would turn from a behavior, you're still holding on to a belief system. A belief system that says, even if I live up to my moral standards, but don't have this particular thing, whatever it is that I treasure, then I'm still a failure. So it's insufficient. You've got to deal with the why underneath. So that's, there's a moralistic approach, but there's also sort of a humanistic approach that deals with psychology and how we're wired, Right? And that approach says this, your problem is that you don't see that God loves you as you are. You've got to rejoice in that. And the problem here is that it focuses on feelings, which seems to be deeper than behavior. It seems to be deeper than behavior, right? Our feelings. But it goes, it fails to go deeply enough. We almost find, we also must find out the why of what we feel. The why of what we feel. Why do I have such strong feelings of despair? or fear, or anger, or jealousy, or anything else like that. Why is it so strong? To just try and change your feelings isn't enough. When you're angry, have you ever told yourself, oh, don't be angry? Have you ever had somebody you're angry at tell you that? Stop being angry. Does it work? It's not enough to change your feelings. There's a why underneath your feelings. There's a why. And you've got to deal with the why underneath them. Telling someone to repent and change feelings is also insufficient. You can't just tell somebody to change your feelings because you're still holding on to the belief that says, even if God does love me, but I don't have this particular thing that I treasure, then I'm still a failure. You see? So those are some things to avoid. Avoid the moralistic approach. Avoid the humanistic approach. And instead, pick up the gospel approach. And the way to look at things through the gospel is this. Your problem is that you're looking to something besides Christ for your happiness. You've been worshiping an idol. You've been rejecting the true God. And you must both repent and rejoice at the same time. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it confronts you with the sin underneath the particular sins and behind the bad feelings. Our problem is that we've given ourselves over to idols. And you're only going to feel free 
from the controlling effects of idols to the degree that you both have, one, repented of your idols, and two, rested and rejoiced in the saving work and love of Christ instead. And to replace idols, you must learn to rejoice in particular the things that Jesus provides that replaces the particular idol of your heart. What does that look like? You always have to ask, you always have to ask, how are these effects being caused? How are these effects in my life being caused by some sort of over-desire, some sort of hope for someone or something to give me what only Jesus can bring? How are these things, how is when I get angry or when I shout or when I distance myself and just pull back and, and not engage at all, how are these effects being caused by an inordinate hope for someone or something to give me what only Jesus can give? And how does Christ give me so much more fully and graciously and suitably the very things that I'm looking for elsewhere? How is he the fulfillment of the storyline of my life and the things that I've been longing for? How does he actually fulfill those things? One of the things that you have to do is rejoice and consider what he's done for you and what he's given for you. So I want, to, I want to experiment with this together. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to pray with me. And we're going to, we're going to work out a practical example of prayer in repentance and prayer in rejoicing. And we'll close with that. Lord, these things in my life, whatever they are, the things that I'm convicted about right now, the things that you're bringing to bear on my mind and in my heart. I've built my life and heart around them. They're good things, but why have I made them absolute things? What is this compared to you? If I have you, I don't have to have this. This cannot love me and help me as you do. This is not my life. Jesus is my life. This is not my righteousness and worthiness. It cannot give me that. But you can and have. Why am I giving so much power to this thing over me? If I keep doing it, it will strangle me. I don't have to do so. I will no longer do so. This will not be my master. You are my only king. Lord, I see how repulsive idolizing this mere idol really is. In yearning after this, I was trampling on your love for me. I realize now my lack of thankfulness, my lack of grateful joy for what you've done for me. And so, Lord, I move from a time of repentance into a time of rejoicing. And when I forget the gospel... And when I become dependent on the smiles and on the evaluation of others and how they esteem me and how they value me and I let them sit in judgment on me and then I hear all their criticism as a condemnation of my very being, I need to remember that you have said there is no condemnation for me. Your delight in me is true and you sing over me. Let me be satisfied with your love. Please remove my idol from me, which can never give me the approval that only you can give. There are many more idols to bring to you, Lord. We ask that you would work in our hearts collectively, that we might take them, lay them down at your feet, give them to you, repent of them, but rejoice in you being the very thing that we're longing for, the very acceptance, the very comfort, the very hope, the very peace. 
Be with us now as we continue together this week and look at that and are amazed by your love to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, a model prayer. You have some examples from your book, from your home meeting study, and from the, from the uh, home study, and from the meetings that you'll do this week. Practice this week repentance and rejoicing prayer. Make sure that they go together. You can't have one without the other. We've looked at the fact that the gospel today transforms us by getting us to admit our drive for our idolatry, our enslavement to idolatry, and our guilt for idolatry. But the great news is, is that there's one who stood in for us. There's one who took the blame for us, who faced God's wrath for us, who faced being given over to the very things that would destroy us. And he took that weight so that you could approach God with confidence, with peace, and with hope. Go to God in him, our faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's by his name that we worship and do all that we do.